We are jumping into our new series, and we've been gearing up for this for a while. Um, am I? Um, might be a little loud, um, but we've, we've been getting ready for this and gearing up for this for, for some time. And uh, the reason we are so excited about jumping into AHA is because we think that as we work through the six weeks of this series, that if we allow it to, we think that as we work through God's word and what he says, that this has the capacity to change our lives, to change the way we think, to change the way we uh, respond, and to change the outcome of the things that we do. And so we feel like this is a big deal, but I want to be clear up front. Something I need you to know as we start digging into this is that this is in no way, shape, or form, this is not a self-help kind of thing. Uh, as a church, we are not about self-help. So I want to make sure that we know that before we get going. Something I want to tell you very clearly, unequivocally, is that AHA will begin at the rejection of self-help. We need God's help. Nothing happens without God being the one that directs it. And that's just what it is, that there's no way around it. There's no way to say it differently than that. And so if you were, uh, if you got a postcard in the mail or you hit up an invitation and, and you thought, oh good, I'll come and get my, my six easy steps to, to fix my life, then I'm sorry to disappoint you. Hopefully you won't get up and walk out, but you'll, you'll track with us here because I think what we have is, is good. I think what we have is God honoring and it's breathed out of scripture and it will do something in your heart and in your life that will make a difference. But it's not self help. It, it's God help. Okay, it's the God moment that will change everything. Okay, and, and you know self-help. Self-help, like an $11 billion industry. Okay, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a little self-help Mad Libs. Somebody give me a number between one and ten. Seven. Okay, excellent. So we have seven. Now, somebody give me a goal that we'd like to accomplish. Now, right now, you're looking at me, you're going, weight loss. No, no, no. That's too easy. Somebody give me a goal that you'd like to accomplish. Oh, sure, seven is easy, but a goal we'd like to accomplish, that one's tough. A happy marriage. A happy marriage. Excellent. So we've got seven. We've got a happy marriage. Now, I need a duration of time. Six months, one year. Uh, hers is easier. I would buy that book first. So here's what we've got. With, with self-help Mad Libs, I've got the title of just about every book that you might come across, or at least the tagline of every book that you might come across, because they all go to the same Mad Lib party. Okay, that's the way Kyle Eidelman says it in his book, Aha, is, is that there's this party that everybody appears to go to. And so for us, we've got, hey, just follow these seven steps to a happier, healthier marriage in six months. And, and that's what self-help is. It's follow these steps, get this worked out, and you're going to be um, better off for it. But I think we all know, honestly, self-help doesn't work. If it did, it wouldn't be an $11 billion industry because people would find the help they need and they would be done and they would be changed and they would grow, but it, it doesn't work. And as a, as, a, as a guy who's been a counselor for a long time, and a pastor for a good chunk of time, I can tell you that we all need help. 
there is none of us here that doesn't need something, that doesn't need to grow. And ultimately, it's because none of us is where we know we want to be. If you're here today and you're, um, and you're confused about that, then I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to challenge you that you should not be done growing. See, sometimes I think this is what happens. Sometimes we, we, we step into some space and we think, okay, finally I've arrived and I'm here and there's not much more for me to do. I, I've raised my kids or, or my kids are doing great or, or I've, I, I, this is just my lot. This is where it is. Maybe it's not great, but it just is what it is and it's not going to get any better. And the reality is we just kind of are resigned to being stuck. What I'm going to say to you is that that's not what God intends for you. God intends for you to grow in him. God intends for your spiritual growth to be a direction that you head, check this, not a destination that you will get to. I mean, that's the reality of this. The reality of this is is that you are not, as a Christian, you are not on this path so that you can get to this spot, you know, like at Candyland where you get to the candy castle and King Candy is there and you win and everybody's happy. This is not what that's like. Some of you haven't played Candyland in a while because you look confused. You know, you go, and if you get Queen Frostine, you skip almost to the end. When I would play with my kids, sometimes the games would get really long. They don't know this, but I'm going to tell them now for the first time. Sometimes, guys, I cheated. But here's the deal. I always cheated so you would win but I was just done playing. Parents, if your kids aren't old enough to understand what I'm saying right now or they're downstairs, use this one. So after you've played for a while, you just keep the Queen Frostine in your pocket. What's that? They get it. They go straight to the top. Two more turns, the game's over. You're welcome. But our spiritual life is a direction that we travel. There is no destination that we get to this side of the grave. This side of heaven, we won't get there. So if you're here this morning, you have moving to do. I promise you, you have moving to do. Because none of us will be perfect in our Christian walk. And aha begins at the rejection of self-help when we say, hey, we know that we need God help to make this work. It's this beautiful collision of your life with the power of God through the power of his word and the movement of the Holy Spirit that brings something new into the way that you live your life. That's where this starts and that's how this works. And you know what? We've seen it. Uh, there's a couple of great examples that Eidelman shares. A lot of what we, um, are, are the concept, the idea of AHA comes from, from his work in the book, AHA. And by the way, if you haven't picked up your free copy, it's at the door. Each family should take one. Each guest should feel free to take one. There's a table at the door there. Grab one on your way out um, and, and make sure that you read that if you want to track along with us or just read it because it's good for you to have. But there's, there's a couple of examples of AHA that he shares, Okay. Uh, one of them is uh, a woman. Who a long time ago learned that she felt better if she ate. And she finally tipped the scale at about 350 pounds. But her, her thought was, when I feel stressed, 
I'll eat. When I feel anxious, I'll eat. When I feel unloved, I'll eat. And so when it was a rough week at work, it wouldn't be um, unusual for that rough week at work to turn into three um, or fourth helpings at dinner. Sometimes when there was a really stressful project going on, it wouldn't be unusual for her to stop on the way home and pick up two or three desserts and then eat them all that night. And so she just leaned into that because it was the thing she could control and it made her feel better. And she tried diets. She tried um, Overeaters Anonymous. She tried a lot of things. She tried a lot of self-help books. Nothing was working. And then she's at church and she hears a sermon where the pastor shares, probably for the hundredth time, but this time she heard it because it was this beautiful collision of what was happening in her life and the word of God that came together. And she heard that Jesus say in John 6, I am the bread of life. And it was like this aha moment for her where she said, you know what? Everything that I've been trying to get out of food, God is the only one that can provide. When I'm anxious and stressed, I don't need food. I need Jesus. When I'm feeling lonely and insecure, I don't need food. I need Jesus. And, and, and at the time that the, that the story was written, that was about 150 pounds ago in a couple of years that she's been leaning into Jesus. And I can tell you what, you could see, you could see the outward results of aha in her life. But only because, only because of an inward reality of her saying, yes, I get it now. This beautiful collision of the word of God and what was going on in her life that happened in her heart and the Holy Spirit pushed her forward. That's what we're talking about. Alcohol is another one. Oh, man. People that drink when they're anxious. People that drink when they're nervous. People that drink when they feel awkward and they drink to feel better and they drink to feel happier and they drink to forget what's happening. But then we, we read that Paul says, hey, don't be drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we get this beautiful picture that, you know what, that, that when I'm anxious and nervous and when I don't feel good enough and when I feel upset, I shouldn't be getting drunk, but instead I should be leaning in and be filled with the Holy Spirit because that's where my ultimate comfort and joy will come from. And so we see, aha, shows up in outward changes, but it happens because of this inward reality. If I don't do this, Carrie's giving me like dirty looks. She's like, fix your sleeves, man. I get it. I do. But this is the reality, okay? Aha happens when we reject self-help, we lean in to the word of God, and we let it do something in us. And here's the deal, okay? Something that you need to know is that it takes more than just the sudden awakening. See, what happens is a lot of us have sudden awakenings. I would imagine that you all have had moments where you've sat and all of the sudden, whether it's through the power of the word or through something somebody says to you or just some inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a song on the radio, whatever it is, you have this moment where, bam, you get it. You're like, my life can't continue like this. Something needs to be different. And then you've gotten out of the car with all of this new resolve and you've woke up in the morning and then you've done exactly the same thing that you've always done. And guess what? You get exactly the same results that you've always gotten. So a sudden awakening is nice. But along with the sudden awakening, you have got to have, listen to me, you have got to have brutal honesty. I get it. 
And I am so brutally honest with myself that I understand why it happens. And I know what's going on. And I know where I'm trusting. And I know where I'm hoping. And I know why it's not right. But you know what? There are plenty of people who have this sudden awakening and they have brutal honesty. They know exactly where they are, but then they still don't want to do anything about it. For you to have growth in your life, God-honoring, God-motivated growth in your life, you know what we call that? We call that transformation. For you to have real transformation in your life, for you to have this aha moment that takes you from where you are and through the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word, it transforms you. This is Romans 12. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Be something growing and different. For you to have that, you, you need the awakening. You need to understand why it's not right. That happens when you read the word. It happens when you hear sermons. It happens when you're encouraged and admonished by friends. You need the honesty, the brutal honesty to say, you know what, I am where I am and, and I know why. But you also need the immediate action. You need to do something about it. And, and here's the thing. We, and the church is guilty of this, and Christians are guilty of this, so I want to walk through this with you just for a second. We are really good at over-spiritualizing things. Now, I'm not trying to dumb down the Word of God, and I'm not trying to say that the Holy Spirit is not actively involved. Of course, the Holy Spirit is actively involved, but we over-spiritualize a lot of things. And what I'm saying to you is that when God illuminates something in your life, there is a sudden awakening, and the Holy Spirit prompts you to brutal honesty, listen to me. Stop waiting for a burning pillar of fire or a giant cloud of smoke to lead you in a direction and do something about it. God shows you that your life isn't where it needs to be, and God prompts you that you need to make changes, then make changes. Stop waiting for just the right moment and just the right time and do the hard. We hate to do the hard. We hate to do the hard, but it doesn't work without the hard. God tells you, you know what, this relationship is not for you. It's time to end it. You know what, I have that realization, and I'm brutally honest that I'm in a relationship that I shouldn't be in, and I'm not honoring God with the way that I'm living my life. But you know what, it's hard, and I don't want to. And so I don't. And you know what, something that you're putting in your body is not good to be putting in your body, and it's contrary to the word of God, and, and you're putting it in your body, and, and God prompts you, says, stop getting drunk. And I'm brutally honest to say, you know what, if I'm honest, I'm getting drunk three, four nights a week, and I need to knock it off. But you know what? It's hard, and so I don't stop. Aha happens when God prompts us, and the Holy Spirit helps us to understand, and then we are willing to take steps. And we're going to see that as we get into God's Word. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that aha happens in Scripture all over the place. But there is one example that I think is far better than any other that really will clarify what it is that we're talking about and will help teach us what we need to know. And it's the story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Luke 15, uh, it's verses 11 all the way to the end of the chapter in 32. And we're going to spend the next six weeks breaking into the story of the prodigal son. Now, some of you are like, well, I know that story. I don't need to spend six weeks on it. Yes, you do. It's going to be okay. I promise. 
Okay, we're going to walk through this together and we're going to learn together about aha through the story of the prodigal son. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today, though. Today, we're going to start at the beginning. We're just going to look at two verses. The first two verses of the story. Okay, now, for those of you that know the story... None of this is surprising. If for some reason you, you are unfamiliar with the prodigal story, uh, what Charles Dickens, by the way, calls the greatest short story ever told, okay, then I'm going to explain it to you a little bit. This is a parable. Now, the thing about a parable is it's not real life, but it's about real life. So this didn't actually happen. Jesus isn't telling a story about people he knows, in this parable. Jesus is telling a story that is meant to show us a grander truth that is about real life. And so this is about real life. This is about God. This is about Jesus. This is about us. This is about movement. This is about spiritual growth. This is about the God of the universe. And so as we dig into this, we're going to start at the beginning. Beginnings are important. Beginnings inform the end. You know that, right? Like, I mean, if I were to give you a beginning, you'd be able to tell me where it came from. Like, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, is Star Wars. Thank you. How many of you were thinking Star Trek? Be honest. You would have been wrong, and we would have laughed at you in a Christian way, because we're at church. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That one's harder. Who knows that one? Wow. Tale of Two Cities. Thanks. Somebody said it. Okay, fine. Uh, apparently, we don't have a lot of Dickens readers in here. But we get this idea, right, that beginnings matter. Beginnings are important. Beginnings set the stage. They tell us what's happening. And this is the same here. Look at this. Luke 15, 11, and 12 says, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Now, if we're smart, we'll stop there. And you're like, man, he almost got a whole verse into it before he stopped. No. Listen. To illustrate this point further, he told the story. Well, what point is he trying to make? When you're reading scripture and you read something like that, man, it's a good idea to go back and see what exactly is he trying to make? What point is he about? Because that seems to be obviously clear to the writer. And so he says, to illustrate this, Jesus told them the story. He's trying to illustrate something that's of critical importance. Go back to the beginning of Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So this text starts with this encouragement or this understanding from Luke that here's what happened when Jesus would teach. People that weren't very Christian in our context came to listen to Jesus say things. People that weren't very godly, people that didn't respond to God the way that they're supposed to, they're the ones a lot of times that would come and sit down and would listen to what Jesus has to say. There was something about the message that he had that drew the disenfranchised, the unenchanted, the, the people that needed help. They would come and they would sit down and they would want to hear what Jesus had to say. If you're here this morning and you were like, I don't know that I believe any of this Christianity stuff. I'm not sure I buy any of it. I don't know where I land with all of this, but there's something about the message at least that's worth listening to. Then you're not alone. Those were the people that always came to listen to Jesus. Tax collectors who were, in that day and age, tax collector was, was akin to worst person ever, according to the Jews. Because tax collectors were, were um, traitors to their people and were getting rich off of robbing the poor 
Sheriff of Nottingham kind of stuff going on there, right? And so they were terrible. And so tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And it made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law mad. See, so track that. This is what's happening. This is what the author is telling us about the story that we're about to read. What happened is people that needed to know about Jesus came to listen to Jesus, and people that were upright and self-righteous and full of themselves got mad about it. Sinners, broken people, drunks, addicts, doesn't matter. They were walking through the door so that they could hear Jesus tell them something that they needed to hear. And instead of celebrating the fact that they were coming to hear from Jesus and be changed, they got mad because those people are not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to like them. You're not supposed to teach them. You're supposed to shun them and have nothing to do with them. This is the message of the day from the religious leaders that would say, hey, you are a sinner. You go get yourself self-helped Get yourself right, then come and hear Jesus. You don't have a right to come and hear Jesus until you get your life cleaned up. And Jesus would say, no, no, self-help doesn't exist. You can't get yourself right until you meet me. And so this is a power struggle of epic proportions that is happening in Luke 15. The religious leaders are saying, you've got to be good enough to come. And Jesus is saying, come as you are. You're broken, you're messy, you're drunk, you've had abortions, you're involved in a lifestyle that you shouldn't be involved in. You're a liar, a swindler, a cheat. You've stepped out on your spouse. Just come as you are. Because it's through me, Jesus is saying this, it's through me that you're going to find what you need. The compelling nature of my word, the power of the Holy Spirit, to get that God moment that will change your life. So this is what you have to understand. This is the Pharisees and Jesus butting heads here about what matters. And so when we get to the story of the prodigal son, we're getting a very real picture about how Jesus feels about this. They're mad that he is eating and associating and sitting around with sinners when he says, man, that's why I'm here. So that not people that are self-righteous, but that people that know they're broken, I can inject my life into them and they can move from here. And he tells two stories. He tells two stories uh, to, to tell us about that. The first story is about uh, the shepherd that has 100 sheep. And 99 of them are safe and secure, but one wanders off. And, and the shepherd leaves the 99 in this crazy thing that would never happen. And he leaves the 99 and he runs out. He runs out to find the one and he tracks the one down and he grabs the one and he brings the one back. They're like, why would that? And then he tells the story of the woman who had 10 coins, and she lost one. Now, how you lose a coin, I'm not sure, okay? I don't know if she was playing with them or, you know, moving them from one spot to another, but somewhere she lost one, and apparently her house was so messy that she couldn't find it because Jesus says this. Now, I mean, there's, listen, I'm, I'm exaggerating. There's dirt floors and other things, don't worry, but, but there's, Jesus says it's like that. She, she has nine. She's not satisfied with nine, She's not satisfied with what she has. She knows some are missing. 
And so what does she do? She sweeps out the whole house looking for the lost one. And when she finds it, she calls the neighbors to celebrate. It was lost. Now it's found. I've got it. Ironically enough, you know what it basically implies? It implies that she spent the one she found celebrating the fact that she found it. Because it was that big of a deal to find what was lost. And Jesus says this in Luke 15, 10. Right before we get to 11, he says, In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So what Jesus is trying to explain to the people that are listening, the angry Pharisees who want to say, they should get cleaned up, then they get the right to come and hear you talk. You are way too important. We as religious leaders are way too important to let broken people into our presence. And Jesus says, no, 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 man. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. That's the mission. That's what we're here for. And then to illustrate the point further so that we can have more understanding in that way, Jesus tells them the story. And the story goes like this. A man had two sons. There was a younger son and an older son. And the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Now, if we don't know anything about culture, we would say, well, that is a very brazen request. It'd be like me calling up my mom and my dad and saying, hey, you know that stuff that's in the will that I get when you die? I would like to have it now. That might be a good way to find out what's in the will. Also might be a good way to make sure I'm not in it. So, got that going on. But here's here's what he does. He says, I want my half of the stuff. And I want it now. It's not mine. I have no right to it. Because you love me, you're going to give it to me when you die. But I can't wait for you to die. Get that. I can't wait for you to die. So give it to me now. I mean, that is a brazen request now. Imagine making that request when a father could literally beat his son for making such a request and throw him out. But it's the request the son makes, and and the father concedes. If you know the story, the father concedes and gives his son the wealth. But here's the deal. The son is desperate for the wealth. Do you know why? Because he thinks he's missing out. Things at the father's house are good. He is provided for. There is work to do. He's surrounded by family. We read further in the story. It's not like there's anything lacking. There are servants and livestock. This is the place where most people would kill to be. And yet somehow he is convinced that he is missing out. That there is something so good away from the father's house that he can barely stand it anymore. And it's this selfish ambition. Give me what's mine, except it's not mine, but give it to me so I can go out on my own. That's what's happening here. That's the beginning of this story, is the younger son is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. He's not using those words, but that's very clearly his intention. I wish you were dead so that I could take what's mine and I could go. 
Now, here's the deal. We're going to look at that and we're going to say, man, the sun's crazy. Who would ever act like that? Who would ever do that? Except here's the reality. You've figured out by now if you've ever heard any teaching on, on this story or this, um, this illustration or, or you, um, I don't know. I mean, you just, you know this, I would imagine. But the father in this story, that's God. The father in this story is represented in the God of the universe. And Jesus is telling the story because the younger son, listen, that's us. And whether we want to admit it or not, we have all left the Father's house. Now, I mean, I know when you grow up and you move out, that's the healthy thing to do. Let me say that again. <laughs> when you grew up, you get older, you move out. That's the healthy thing to do. Parents, you're welcome. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about a healthy leaving. I'm talking about a break from a place where you were safe and you were provided for and it was good and it was right. And because of your selfish desires, because you thought you knew better, because of something in you that burned for something more than was being provided, you decided to break away and leave the father's house. You know why it happens? It happens because we do stupid I'm going to say it carefully, not that we are stupid, but we do stupid. I say that to you all the time. It happens because we do stupid, because we think that we know better. Part of the reason that we think we know better is because we stop being connected to the word of God. This is what Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is well cared for. That person lives in the Father's house. That person has everything they need. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. But the root there is being connected to the word of God. And when we as Christians make the fundamental almost universal flaw of rejecting the word of God. Not in mouth. We don't say we reject the word of God. But indeed, we reject the word of God. And I don't need you to raise your hand and I don't need you to, to, to say yes or no, but I need you to ask yourself this question. When was the last time that you were in the word of God two days in a row? I mean, if I said, when was the last time you were in the Word of God? Somebody would be, oh, I was in there two days ago because I needed to know what verse to write on the card I was sending to my mom. No, no, I mean, like two days in Rome was the last time you dug in and you read the Word of God. And you read it with such an open heart and mind that you let it transform you. You let the Word of God change the way you think, not you took the way you think and you read it into the Word of God so you could make excuses for things. I'm talking about when was the last time you meditated on the Word of God. Listen to me. We leave the Father's house when we forget the Father's Word. But this says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who spends their time in God's Word. Man, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. And so it's like this. We've talked about this before, but what happens is when we step away from God's word, we get awfully confused about God's rules. And we see the rules that God has put in place as a way to control us and rob us and limit us. 
We've used this analogy before, but I want you to understand it. We're going to go over it again here. It's like the fence that you put around your backyard. You live by a highway. You live by a main road. You've got little kids. What do you do? You put a fence around the yard because you know that the fence, when they stay inside of it, is designed to keep them safe. Look, kids are disappearing all over the place these days. You guys know this, right? We're all being vigilant. We're all being careful. Uh, There was a car. Turned out to be just fine. But because we're being vigilant and being careful, there was a car parked outside our house for a long time yesterday. And there was a gentleman who was in the car sitting there for a long time. And Aubrey and Bree were running around, playing, doing whatever. And we're like, well, that's weird, right? It's weird that this guy's sitting in a car across the street for a long time while our kids are out playing and having a good time. And so, you know, Carrie's like, go check him out. (laughs) So she did. She went outside. She took a picture. (laughs) I did the same thing when I left of his license plate. Because as parents, we desire what is best and safest for our kids. And frankly, here's the deal. We know better than they do what's safest and what's better. And so we put up the fence and we say to our kids, look, you are free to play in the yard. Stay in the yard because it's better for you. It's safer for you. It's where your maximum joy comes. But oftentimes the kids see the fence and what do they think? Man, my parents are terrible. They're making me stay in this safe yard. And real freedom is found out there. And I want to go out there and experience real freedom. And so what we've done, because we love and care for them, they look at as we are restricting them. We say, you know what? Boys and girls, teenagers that are dating, they don't need to be alone together. Oh, that's so restrictive. You, you hate me. You don't want me to have any fun. You can't trust me. You should just let me. No, 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 no. You know what? That's a fence we put in because we know better. It's for your maximum enjoyment, even though you don't understand it, that this fence exists. Sex outside of marriage is not something you should be engaging in. You just shouldn't be. But that's so restrictive and so old-fashioned, and it's not appropriate, and it's, it's not necessary, and you're just trying to control me. No, this is a fence that God has put up. Why? Because he knows better. He knows what's good for your soul. He knows what's good for your life, for your eternity. I can lie and cheat just a little bit, and it won't matter. Oh, it's a fence that's appropriate to exist. Look, God puts fences up because he knows. Part of our problem is we, as Christians, we understand it as parents. We forget it when it comes to God. And so we see the fence as limiting our freedom. When God puts laws in place and God puts restrictions in place and God puts things in place, we, because we think we're the smartest people that have ever lived, because we think we know better than than. All of the authors in in the Bible, we think we know better than the God of the universe who creates everything. We think we know better than orthodox thinking for 2,000 years. We think we know better than the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us. We say, you know what? The fence is just limiting our freedom and trying to control us. But if we understood the character of God, if we understood the Father heart of God, we would never leave the Father's house. We would see the fence 
as giving freedom, not taking it. So here's what I want to say to you as we, as we, as we finish this, this part of it. I want to say this. Be careful to never separate the law of God from the Father heart of God. Because when you separate the law of God from the Father heart of God, it becomes very easy. It becomes very easy for you to want to leave the Father's house. Because you feel like there's something that he's holding back. There's something that you deserve and desire, and he's saying no, and there's no reason for him to say no, and it's time. But when you remember the Father heart of God, then you trust him. Then you trust it, and you respond to it. Okay, and so I want to dig in here with these last few things. There are four reasons why we leave the Father's house. I think there's four reasons when we forget about the Father heart of God. I think there's four things that drive that, that we can know about and combat. The first one is this. We are all about instant gratification. Right? I wanted to know who won the Illinois game last night. Anybody know who it was? It was Illinois. You guys were all like, Iowa, Iowa State. That's fine. But Illinois beat Western Illinois. So, yay. Uh, That gives us two wins on the season, which is probably where we'll end. But they were two exciting wins. But I wanted to know that. You know what? I could have waited um, to find out or looked in the paper or whatever. But last night, as soon as Carrie started to drift off, I asked Siri. (laughs) And Siri, in a very loud voice, because I had not disconnected her from the speaker in our bedroom, told us that Illinois won handily. I want it now. I want to know now. I want it instantly. Right? We get instant messaging, instant banking, instant whatever. We want it right now. We don't like to wait. But the Christian life, following God, is a lot of delayed gratification. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what's in our human broken nature is now, 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 now. But the God of the universe says what's best is if you do it in the proper time, in the proper way. And so a lot of the Christian life is delayed gratification. But you know what? As broken people, when we look at the fence that God has put up and we, we can't understand it, we think he's robbing us of something, we say, you know what? I want it now. And so we demand our inheritance and we leave the Father's house. Entitlement, that's another one. Um, we deserve it. We deserve it. We get to this point where we think we absolutely deserve the thing that we want. That we've worked hard, that we've tried hard, that we've strived, that we've done it. And you know what? We're sick of waiting and we deserve it and we want it now. And there's a, there's a thing here that happens uh, when we say that we deserve it. it. It's this idea that every day we put the work in, every day we put the work in, every day we put the work in, and therefore we deserve something better. It's a lot like this video. Greg, you want to go ahead? Chicken too? Oh, I just spilled. Your food will be out in just a little bit. 
Obviously, in this story, the father represents God, and the younger son represents, well, most of the rest of us. I need more fries. If you've ever thought about chucking it all and starting over, if you've ever thought that you wanted more and deserved better, if you've ever felt like you were being held back or you were missing out or that you wanted to do things your own way, then perhaps you can identify with this younger son. So it happens when you go through the motions every day, day in, day out. You get up, you show up, you do what you're supposed to do, you come home, you go to bed. And then you get up and you show up and you do what you're supposed to do and then you come home and you go to bed. And it's day in and it's day out and nothing changes. It doesn't get you where you thought it was supposed to get you. It doesn't do for you what you thought it was going to do for you. And ultimately, we, we, we do the same thing with our spiritual life, right? We get up, we go to church. Every week we get up, we show up at church. And my life doesn't change. I don't feel any different. It doesn't feel any better. It doesn't feel like this grand new thing has happened. I get up, I show up at church, and nothing in me has changed. And I start thinking, fine, you know what, God? I deserve better than this. And so I'm going to go do it on my own. But you know what? There's this grand thing that you forget. When entitlement is your attitude, this I want it now, there's this grand thing we forget. And here's what you forget about the Christian life. You forget, oh, man, you forget that you don't deserve anything. I want you to understand this here, Christian. If you are a follower of Christ, get this reality. You don't deserve anything. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. None of you can boast about it. Something that we forget is we forget and we think, well, we've earned this. We should have this by now. We've done the hard work. We've gotten ourselves our inheritance. I've demonstrated that I should have it. If you know the story well, you know this is the older son's attitude. And we're going to find out about that as we get towards the end of the series. But his attitude is, the younger son left. I stayed. I worked hard. I earned it. But it's a, it's a wrong belief because here's the deal. Christian, understand this. If you are a follower of Christ here, you deserve nothing. But everything you have, you've been given by the grace of God. I have joys beyond belief in my life. I didn't earn them. I don't deserve them. But by the grace of God, he has given them to me. There's bitterness. We get bitter. A lot of times what happens is um, we know that we leave the father's house because it's just not what we wanted it to be. We thought we wanted more. We thought we deserved more. But life is hard. We know we read in scripture that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purposes. So we know there's this truth out there that everything that happens is supposed to be good. But you know what? Things keep happening that aren't any good and I can't stand it anymore. So I want to leave the father's house. Some of you are like that now. Some of you have got so much stuff in your life, so much garbage, so much background, so much pain and hurt and suffering. You, you've been abused. You've dealt with, with trauma and death and sadness, and people have treated you unfairly, and all of these things happen. And so you get to the point where you're like, you know what? If this is what it means to be in the Father's house, then I'm leaving the Father's house because this isn't right. And so you walk away. Okay, but here's the deal. This is where we end today. 
It doesn't matter why you left. What the reason was that you left, what the circumstances were that caused you to leave, it doesn't matter, matter, listen to me, please, please, please listen carefully. It doesn't matter how hard you burned that bridge when you walked out the door. It doesn't matter how loudly you left. It doesn't matter what happened when you left. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. What matters is whether or not you're going to come home. See, our story begins at the father's house with the younger son demanding his inheritance, saying to the father, I wish you were dead, out of selfish ambition. He didn't mean to probably say that to his father. He didn't mean to ruin his family. He didn't mean to tear things apart. He just wanted what he wanted. And the best way he could think to do it was to demand freedom and go out on his own. You know what's weird? The father lets him go. You know what's weird? When you left home, God let you go too. It's not that he wanted you to leave. He didn't want you to leave. And it's not that he couldn't stop you. He absolutely could have stopped you. But God let you go because he's not going to force you. But the question for you is not how you left or what got you gone or what you did when you left. The question for you is, are you ready to come home? Because the grace of God is for you. And you cannot, listen to me very carefully, you cannot outrun the grace of God. What you've done, why you've done it, how far you've gone, you cannot outrun the grace of God. It is time for you to come home. And that's what we will continue to work on through this series, is what it looks like to come home and how to come home. But I'm going to go ahead and skip to the end for you real quick as the praise team comes up and prepares to close us out. Here's this real quick thing that I'm going to say to you. Okay? And we'll learn more about this week in, week out, and we'll learn the steps that we need to take to come home. But it's this simple. If you want to come home, all it takes is an acknowledgement. God, I ran away. And I'm sorry, and I want to come home. When you say, I'm sorry, and I want to come home, do you know what you're saying? You're saying, God, I'm asking for your forgiveness. And because you cannot outrun the grace of God, when you say, God, I'm sorry, and I want to come home, forgive me, his answers in you, in Christ, are yes. So I'm going to pray for us. And if you want to come home today, it's that simple, just to say in, in your heart of hearts, God, I, I want to come home. And for some of you, maybe you need to come home for the first time. You've never come home to the Father, and he is waiting for you, and he's looking for you, and he's longing for you, and we'll, we'll see that as we unpack the rest of this series. For some of you, maybe you need to come home for the hundredth time. doesn't matter. Because when you knock on the door and you say, Dad, can I come home? His answer is, yes, I've been waiting for you. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the fact that even though you let us go and even though we stray, we, we recognize and we thank you that you will always welcome us home. And the boundaries that you put in place, the fence that exists, doesn't exist to restrict us or rob us. It exists because you are the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, you know where we thrive. You know what we were made for. And you want us to step into that and live in that. And so, Father, thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for the willingness to forgive us of our sin tax collectors and notorious sinners, and you welcomed them all, and you welcome us too.
Father, I pray that if there's those here that are desiring and longing to come home, that they would just confess that to you in their heart and they would respond to your truth. Father, we love you and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the fact that we have been forgiven. We thank you for the fact that we are offered redemption when we trust and accept Jesus Christ. That there is a way home. Father, we love you and we praise you. Amen.